got to bring my own pulpit. It was not in the contract. Well, good morning, everybody. Are you enjoying the weather? Oh, isn't it awesome? I was looking at the weather forecast. It's going to be 59 degrees tonight. That's what I'm talking about. All right, we got a lot to cover today. Um, 9, 10.30? Congratulations. When the people walk in, in about 10 minutes or so, don't make them feel embarrassed, okay? Just welcome them in as if, you know, we just got here. So, you know someone's going to, right? In the next week or two, someone's showing up at 11 o'clock instead of 10.30. Well, we're in a series, part three of a series called The Relational Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at two characters, you're getting a twofer, that interact with Jesus, that Jesus relates with. And they're very opposite characters. One is kind of at the top of the social ladder, and the other one is at the bottom of the social ladder. And you probably know one uh, better than the other, a woman that Jesus meets at the well. We pretty much all know about the woman at the well, right? Or most of us. And in both of these encounters, I think what we hear is is how Jesus is able to relate to people on all levels. He's able to meet people where they are at and encourage and help them to move to a better place. So we're going to see that. Both interactions are found in in the Gospel of John chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is very early on in Jesus' ministry. So let me kind of set the scene for you. He's been living uh, in the north of Israel, in Galilee, where his home is. And at some point, he decides to head down to Jerusalem for the biggest religious festival that they have there, Passover. And people come from all over the Holy Land, from all over the Middle East, to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the place is absolutely jam-packed with people. And he's right in the heart of Jerusalem. They're not really used to Jesus yet. This is kind of the first time that Jesus inserts himself into this community in Jerusalem. And he goes right to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he sees something that just burns him. He gets in there, and the religious leaders are extorting the people who have come to celebrate the Passover. You had to pay a temple tax, but it had to be paid in temple money. So they would exchange money. You could bring your, your Roman money or your Greek money or your Hebrew money, and they would exchange it for temple money so that you could make your offering. But they did it at extortionate rates. They were taking advantage of people. Another thing that you would have to do is you'd have to offer a sacrifice, a, a goat or a, a bird, And they would sell you the livestock for the sacrifice at extortionate prices. So Jesus goes into the temple. He sees this going on. He gets angry. He goes out, makes a whip, comes back into the temple and starts driving all the animals out there, tipping up the tables and causing a pretty bad ruckus, I would say. And obviously, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, are very upset at this. This is income. You know, what are you doing with our income? And they demand to know from him, who are you? 
by whose authority are you doing this? If you're from God, then show us some miraculous signs so that we know that you're from God. They were not what you would call well-wishers. But Jesus obliges. He stays there for a few days and, and he performs a bunch of miracles. In chapter one of, of John, chapter 2 of John finishes with this. It says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. <laughs> I love this. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. It's a wonderful snapshot of this one-sided relationship that we have with Jesus. You know, he's trustworthy. He's faithful. We're not so good at that stuff. And uh, it's kind of interesting to me that right at the beginning of of Jesus' ministry, his expectations for us are not very high. He sets the bar pretty low. So it's like, ouch. Now, as if to emphasize that point, chapter 3 begins with this interesting encounter with this person at the top of the social ladder whose name is Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee. Let me just talk about the Pharisees for a second. The Pharisees were the most religious of all the religious people. He was a religious leader and a part of this sect called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were already at odds with Jesus, even though this, before the, before the whole temple thing. And the reason they were at odds with Jesus is John the Baptist. The Pharisees and the religious leaders thought that they held the keys to God. You want to get to God, you've got to come through us. You've got to come to the temple, and we are the gateway to God. We'll tell you what you have to believe. We'll tell you how you have to believe it. You just come to us, and they controlled religion. Well, then this upstart, John the Baptist, starts this new religious rite called baptism. It's not heard of in the Bible before this, not in the Old Testament. And, and they kind of were going along with this idea of baptism. It was for, for repentance, for forgiveness of sins. But he's not part of the group. He's out there just outside of Jerusalem in the river baptizing people. And he's got this new religious right. And they're like, hang on a minute. We're in charge of religion. Not not this guy. But they had a problem because all the people were flocking to John the Baptist. They wanted to go out there. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to get baptized. Which put the Pharisees in a very difficult position. Because one of the things that they enjoyed as the keepers of the keys to religion was their high social standing. They liked to be in a good light with people, in a good frame with people. So if they spoke against this John the Baptist guy that all the people are going out to see, then they they have a problem. They want to remain in the favor of the people, but they didn't like this upstart. So they send some of the Pharisees out to John the Baptist. And they go out to John the Baptist and say, who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? And and they're asking John the Baptist who he is. And he explains to them what he's doing and why he's doing it. He says, no, I'm I'm the forerunner of the one who is coming. And he basically says to them, if you think you got a problem now, you have no idea. (laughs) He says, there is one amongst you that you have not yet recognized, the sandals of whom I'm not worthy to clean. So they know something's going down. 
This, we got this upstart out here. He's doing this, this new religious thing, and it's not from us. And he's told us that someone even bigger than him is coming, and he's here now. Something is going down. So they're ready for Jesus. They know something's happening. Then you've got the Passover festival. Jesus walks in there, builds a, gets a whip, kicks them all out, and it's like, oh, this guy. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Jesus performs all these miracles, and it's a bit of a problem for some of these Pharisees because they're not in the Jesus camp, but they can't explain all of these signs that seem they come from God. Because they said to Jesus, if you're from God, give us a sign. And Jesus says, no problem. And he gives them a bunch of signs. So Nicodemus has sought Jesus out. He comes to Jesus at night so the other Pharisees don't know that he's gone to see Jesus. Something is going on inside of this Pharisee. He knows there's something more to this guy. So John chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said. Just the fact that he addresses Jesus as rabbi, which is Jewish for teacher, he knows this guy is somebody. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I love that Jesus does this kind of thing. He does this all the time. Nicodemus comes at him, he makes a statement, and Jesus asks, makes this statement that's right out of left field. And he did this all the time, and the purpose that he would do this, he, he speaks a transformative truth that begs a question. And the question that it begs is, what are you talking about? You know, we know you're from Jesus. Yeah, you need to be born again. What? <laughs> Where'd that come from? What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back in his mother's womb and be born again? So Jesus wastes no time with Nicodemus. He, he just gets right to the heart of the matter. You've got to be born again. That means that we must be born of the flesh and of the spirit. This is what Jesus is telling him. And that confuses Nicodemus. Like two births? How, how do you have two births? What are you talking about, Jesus? And then a little later in the dialogue, down in, in verse 14, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So he's foreshadowing, here, right at the beginning, his crucifixion. That's what it used to mean, to be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son that whoever so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So Jesus gives him the gospel. He gives him the good news right here. He tells this religious leader, this man, the most religious of the religious, that his religion isn't going to be any good for him. It's not going to save him. That, that you are saved by grace through faith. 
you are saved by believing in the Son of God. You know, for him, he's just not going to be able to get his head around. All of his life, he's done all these good things because he's trying to earn God's favor. And Jesus comes along, and and he knows he's from God and says, no, that don't count. Say, what? And then he said one other thing that, you know, we all know the most popular verse, the most well-known verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world. That would not have sat right with Nicodemus either. Because from Nicodemus' perspective, God's chosen people are the Jewish people. It's not open to anybody else. It's the Jewish people, and it's only to good Jews that followed all the rules. And Jesus is shattering his belief system. Nope, it's not about religion. And guess what? It's for everybody. So poor Nicodemus is like, huh? Let's go back to the beginning bit, Jesus. You know what I was talking about at the start. I imagine that Nicodemus leaves there with his head spinning. It's like, what was that all about? So Jesus speaks a truth to him, and he leaves him with a choice. Are you going to believe, or are you not going to believe? Are you going to accept Jesus' truth, or are you going to reject Jesus' truth? At, At the very least, Nicodemus investigated a little bit more. So that's the first encounter. We got the guy at the top of the social status. Jesus then leaves Jerusalem. He goes outside of Jerusalem for a little while. He's out there baptizing people, teaching the good news. And and there's a little side note here. It talks about a rivalry between the disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples. I mean, think about that. The followers of Jesus would have a rivalry and not agree with each other. Who could imagine So verse chapter 4 begins. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. It's like, okay, we have one upstart. This guy's even worse. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did, which is an interesting little side note there. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Now, he's not running away. He's getting out of Dodge, as we would say. He's not running away. He knows he's got a lot more work to do with these disciples, and his time has not yet come. It's getting pretty hot in in Judea. Going to head back to Galilee. So he's he's going to safe country. Verse 4, it says, He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, this is really interesting. Had to. We'll go to the next slide. So I don't know if you can see that. This is a map of the Holy Land back in, in Jesus' time. So Israel was made up of a a number of regions. But most of the population lived sandwiched between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. There were some that were east of the the Jordan River, but the vast majority of the population lived between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. So you can see in the bottom is Judea. Jerusalem is the center of Judea. You can see at the top is Galilee. Where do you have to go to get from Judea to Galilee. You've got to go through Samaria. But any good Jewish person would not go through Samaria. They'd rather go go across the river, up through Perea, all the way up to the Decapolis, and then back up. They would rather double their journey than go through Samaria. So let me give you a little bit of history here. 
way back in the Old Testament, after God had, had given the Jewish people the Holy Land, he said, you know, if you stay faithful to me, I'll be your God, I'll take care of you. Well, we all know the story there. That didn't happen. And the kingdom got divided to the north and to the south, Israel in the north, Judea in the south. At some point, the Assyrian army comes and takes the north. And they settle there. Judea stays safe for a while, but these Assyrians come in and take the northern half of the kingdom. Now, you'll notice a similarity between the name Assyrian and Samarian. So typically what happens, these people come in and settle there. They start intermarrying. They, they become part of the culture. So you have Jewish people marrying Assyrian people. They became the Samaritans. The Jewish people were absolute purists. They were God's chosen people. You've got to keep the bloodline pure, which is oftentimes they would intermarry in their family to keep their family name. If they couldn't do that, they would intermarry in their clan. You certainly would not intermarry with a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. They wouldn't even go to a Gentile's house. They wouldn't eat with a Gentile. They wouldn't invite a Gentile into their house. It's like, no, we're Jews. We're way above you. We won't have anything to do with you. The only thing worse than a Gentile is a Jew who marries a Gentile. In their mind, these are half-breeds. We don't like these people. They're not us. We're not even going to cross through the, the land, even though it's part of our land. I'd rather go across the, the, the water up there and back. I'd double my journey rather than go through and have to interact with these Samarians. They hated each other. They despised each other. So let me ask you a question. Who are your Samarians? What groups of people are your Samarians? You know, when we lived up in Canada, Alberta, I have never come across two cities, Edmonton and Calgary, that hated each other more. The rivalry was the most intense that I've ever come across. Hockey, football, whatever. They called it the Battle of Alberta. You, you can Google, go to YouTube and just watch them play hockey against each other. It was hate, you know? They're both in the same province, but they hated each other. But we do that, don't we? We have Samarians. Who, who are your Samarians? Gay people? LGBTQIA2S+. Liberals? Fundamentalists? Catholics? Muslims? Gen Xers? Millennials? Boomers? Russians, you see, once you label a people, it's easier to dehumanize them because they become part of those people. And then we paint all of those people with the big old same brush, right? Those people, they all this, they all that, they do this, they do that. And you can categorize them. And sadly, it makes it easier to dehumanize and then do inhumane things to those people. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? It's not like he's in a hurry. 
This is early on in his ministry. He could have gone around like all good Jewish people do. But he had straight from Judea, straight into the very center of Samaria. Why does he do this? First off, Jesus never categorized people. He really didn't care what ethnic group you belong to, what religious group you belong to, what political group you belong to. He, he really, he just simply didn't care, which is difficult for us because we do care. And I believe he had a divine appointment with the lady that we're about to, to read about. Do you believe in divine appointments? I really believe that sometimes God puts people in our paths. He brings circumstances to us sometimes to bring us to a place, a meeting point with him. Sometimes he'll turn up the heat on our lives, make our lives difficult so that we call out to him. I believe he had a divine appointment. Verse 5, it says, Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. So the history predates the whole Samaritan thing. The, the, the weird thing is, I, do, I like to research, there's no mention anywhere in the Old Testament of Jacob's well. But the writer of the gospel here seems quite familiar with it, and he's writing to people like Jacob's well, and they're all, oh yeah, yeah, Jacob's well. And I love Jesus' humanity here. He's tired and he's thirsty. He's probably walked about 20 miles already this day. 20 miles. Noon. Heat of the day. And he's just tired. And he gets to this well. He sits down beside the well. He doesn't have anything to draw water with. And he's just tired and he's thirsty. You ever get tired and thirsty? I'm miserable when I'm tired and thirsty. I'm miserable most times, but I'm more miserable when I'm tired and thirsty, you know? You just leave me alone. Verse 7 says, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She must have recognized his accent or something. Something let her know he was Jewish. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Like, this, this doesn't happen. There's a whole bunch of social dynamics going on. First, she's a woman. Men don't speak to women. It just wasn't done in this society, especially a rabbi. What are you doing talking to a woman? You, you know, you're compromising your reputation here. Number two, she's alone. That's a no-no. A little bit more on that in a minute. Number three, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. It's like, no, no, no. But Jesus didn't care about any of those things. Like he, what had he told Nicodemus? For God so loved the world. This is this in action. He had other things on his mind, bigger things. Jesus replied, if, only, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. 
She didn't know who she's talking to. I um, heard an interesting story that Sandra shared with me. So, you know, everybody knows that the Queen passed away this week. And there was a story, all kinds of stories of her life are coming out. And um, there was one from her bodyguard. So very often she would live in Scotland in a place called Balmoral, which is where she passed away. And she used to like going walking on the estate, but she'd have to go with a bodyguard. So this particular time she's out walking with a bodyguard and she sees two people coming toward them on the trail. And apparently the queen would always stop and talk. And as these two people got closer, you know, she stopped. They turned, they're Americans. And they're hiking up there, and, and they stop and talk, and she's chatting with them. And, you know, they're asking her how long she's lived there, and, and she's, she's 86 years old. Well, I've been coming up here for ever. She said, I've got a holiday home just over the hill there. <laughs> it's called Barrow Castle, but she didn't mention that part. <laughs> She said, I live in London, but I got a holiday home over the hill there. And uh, so this guy's talking to her, and he says, seriously, you come? You must have met the queen. <laughs> and she looks at me, she says, well, I haven't. I can't remember what the name, Dick, but Dick, the, the security guard, but Dick's met her. <laughs> and Dick jumps right in on the humor. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, she's a really cantankerous kind of lady. But... <laughs> but she's got a good sense of humor. So these two are looking at Dick. You've met the queen? They give the queen their camera so that she would take a selfie of them with the guard. <laughs> the queen, you know, she knows what's going on. So then he eventually says, I'll take a picture of you all together too. And she never reveals who she is, just like this lady. She didn't know who she's talking to. The queen goes off and she says to the guard afterwards, she says, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they show somebody that picture. <laughs> but that's what's happening here. This lady's talking to Jesus. She has no clue who Jesus is. And Jesus does it again. He, he does what he did to Nicodemus. He, he puts that statement out there that begs a question. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. What are you talking about? You're sitting beside a well. You don't have a bucket to get the water out and you're telling me about living water? I think the heat's got to this guy, you know? In essence, what Jesus is saying to her is if you understood, and I guess he's saying it to us too, if you understood what God has for you, and that I can and I'm willing to give to you, if you asked for it and received it, everything would be different for you. No more thirsting for what does not satisfy. She replies, but sir, she replies the obvious, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? She's trying to make sense of what Jesus just said to her. You know, she's confused. I'd be confused. He's, and, and then she carries on. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? She's, it's like she's saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? Living water. This is Jacob's well. It belongs to us. This, this is the best water. It's Samaritan water. 
What are you talking about? Jesus replies, as anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, some of the little terminology that, you, you know, a lot of stuff you can miss. They're at a well, but Jesus talks about a spring. Water in a well can dry up, right? Water in a well can become contaminated. There are basically three ways you could get water back in those days. You could have a well, or you could have a cistern, which is like a well. It'd be a pit that you dig out and put water in, or you had a spring. Cisterns can get contaminated. Wells can get contaminated. But typically, spring water was a constant flow of fresh, good water. So they're at a well, and Jesus says to her, you will have a spring of water within you that brings eternal life. And I'm sure she's still thinking, this guy's nuts. <laughs> the heat has got to him. And then she says, please, sir. I'm just reading sarcasm in this. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. Give me some of that water. I don't have to keep coming up here with a bucket to get water. Yeah, yeah, give me that. And then Jesus blows her away. He says, go and get your husband. She says, what? I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. You don't get into a sarcasm battle with Jesus. It's not going to go well. Now, why has this woman had five husbands? What's her story? And now she's shacking up with someone. It's unheard of. It explains why she is at the well in the middle of the day alone. She doesn't want to come up there with the other woman because all the other women are looking at her. Slut, harlot. They're being mean to her. I'll I'll just go in the middle of the day when nobody is there. That's why she's alone. She is a social outcast. So you got Nicodemus. He's at the top of the ladder, the social ladder. A Jew, a religious leader, a Pharisee, the most religious of religious people. Very top of the ladder. And then you got this woman at the bottom of the ladder. She's a woman, she's an outcast, she's a harlot, and she's a Samaritan. Jesus responds to them both in exactly the same way. He doesn't care where you're at. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care what you haven't done. He meets them where they are at, and he speaks truth in love to them. But what you do with the truth is up to you. So she's shaken up a bit now, as you can imagine, You know, she thinks this guy's nuts. He's got living water. And then he tells her this. And it's like, whoa, I don't like that. What else do you know? Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. Sometimes when you get confronted with truth that's difficult for you, you deflect. It's like, yeah, but, oh, squirrel. Let's talk about the squirrel. 
I don't want to talk about what you just confronted me with. Jesus, he just stays right on course. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He said, I don't care for your religion. Worship where you want. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. When the Assyrians came in, they brought their gods with them. So the Samaritans kind of had a watered-down system going on. Yeah, they still believed in the Jewish God, but it, it wasn't a good belief. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. Important to note, he isn't saying salvation comes to the Jews. It comes through the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. But the time is coming, he keeps going here, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is very important. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. He's not looking for religious people. He's not looking for good people. He's not looking for men or for women or for Jews or for Samaritans. He's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In essence, what he's saying to her is exactly the same thing as he said to Nicodemus. Are you willing to let go of your truth and embrace my truth. My truth comes to you in the spirit. That's why Nicodemus was with him. Something was going on with him. You know, he's, he's got all of his religion, but he knows inside of himself something's missing. Something's not right here. The spirit of God was working. The same thing is unfolding with this woman. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Let me tie this together. In Nicodemus' world, your behavior dictated your favor with God. We call that religion. Nicodemus was a religious person, and religious people believe you get to heaven by being religious. That's what you do. Christ turned this idea of religion on its head. He told that you don't get to heaven by what you do. You get to heaven through grace demonstrated by faith. Nicodemus believed if you were good enough, you would gain favor with the Lord. Jesus taught that we gain favor with the Lord by accepting and believing his son. And our good behavior will be a product of that relationship. You're not good to get God's favor. You're good because you have God's favor. It's all about relationship and not religion. This interaction with the woman at the well is all about cravings, soul cravings. We are spiritual creatures wrapped in a human body. That's what we are. Our souls 
are designed, they're geared toward relationship with God. They, they, your soul naturally seeks God. The flesh seeks, it craves the trappings of this world. Power, pleasure, possessions, position, relationships. But it's an empty pursuit. We can only find true contentment and satisfaction in that which satisfies the soul. This is what Jesus is teaching this woman at the well. She's on her fifth, sixth guy, five husbands, and now she's shacking up with a guy. She's trying to satisfy a yearning in her soul with something that is not going to satisfy her soul. And she keeps going back to the same well to satisfy this yearning. Our spirit desires that which is eternal because our spirit is eternal. Our flesh desires that which is temporary because our flesh is temporary. It's kind of like we've got this war going on. But you can crush the spirit. You can crush the spirit's desire to connect to God. You can just push it down if you want until there's nothing left and there's no connection. And that's kind of what... Jesus is telling this woman, there's something in you that desires something more. And if you come to me, I will ignite it for you and you will find true satisfaction. You see, when you crush the spirit down, you become a discontent person. You're always grumbling about things. Nothing satisfies. We can only find true satisfaction and contentment in the spiritual So this woman's need is not being met, but she keeps returning to the same well. The world is filled with people who are wishing at the wrong well. If I just had this, if I just had that, if I had more of this, or if I had more of that, then you cannot meet a spiritual need with a physical solution simply creates a greater thirst. That's why we have physical needs. God has given us physical needs to point us to him. You get to a point, sometimes, you know, it's kind of like there's got to be something more because this is not very satisfying. There must be something more. And that's what Jesus is teaching her. I am the more. If you accept me, if you believe in me, you will get the satisfaction you're not getting now. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. So how do these two respond? Nicodemus leaves Jesus that night. He comes up twice more in the scriptures, once in John chapter 7, in an argument with the other Pharisees about Jesus. And then he comes up in John chapter 19. Him and another person are the ones who take Jesus' body from the cross and put it in the tomb and dress it with all the herbs and everything else for burial. That's Nicodemus. I'm thinking Nicodemus stayed confused. I don't think he ever got to a solution. I think three days later, when Jesus comes back to life, Nicodemus gets his answer. But at this point, he's still confused. He knows. That's why he's gone to get this body. No no other Pharisees doing that. The woman at the well, the rest of the story is awesome. She leaves her pitcher pitcher there, runs back into the village 
where she's an outcast, tells everybody, I just met a guy out at the well. I think he might be the one from God. He told me everything about myself. She's so persuasive. It says that the people of the village streamed out of the town to the well to see Jesus. And then Jesus spends another two days with them because they're all asking him questions. And and it says that, that many of the Samaritans became believers because of this outcast lady. How do we respond when Jesus brings truth to us that may not sit well with us or may challenge what we want to believe? Well, I think there's five things, five quick things I'm going to give you. Number one, you've got to be willing to surrender your truth. Now, I understand. You know, someone knocks on my door with a truth. I'm not throwing everything out. Oh, I love this new truth. Because our truth is our truth, Right? But there's a willingness to, to be open to the fact that, you know, everything we believe, we believe by choice. We think it's a rational decision, but pretty much everything we believe, we believe by choice because someone told us. We don't actually have proof. I have friends here that live in Australia. I've never been to Australia. I believe it's down there. I have no empirical proof that there's an Australia. Maybe they're lying to me. I don't know. Maybe they go to Houston in a minute. (laughs) But I choose to believe in Australia because I choose to. Everything we believe, we believe because we choose to. Be open to the idea that maybe your truth is not the truth. Number two, be willing to accept Jesus' truth. At least investigate it. You know, if, if, if I was Nicodemus, I'd be going away and I'd be looking in the scriptures. What does it say about, what, what, what does this Messiah guy, what is it? You've got nothing to lose. Number three, invite him into your journey of truth. I remember when Sandra was looking before she ever became a Christian and she had all kinds of, of questions. You know, there's a point, and I've I've had this conversation with many people. You have nothing to lose by going to God and saying, are you there? I I don't know if you're there. Are are you there? Would you you help me with this? I want to know the truth. Respond to his truth. If he reveals himself to you, because sometimes we still hold on. We look for a truth. The truth is revealed to us, but we don't want to let go of our old truth. It's painful for us. So respond to his truth. For for it to take root, you've got to respond. You've got to do something about it. Begin living it out. And number five, share the living water. She ran right into town. There's a guy out at the well. I don't know about this guy at the well, but... He might be the one. And everybody comes out. I believe we've all got basic needs. We have a need for love. We have a need for purpose. We have a need for hope. And I believe in Jesus. 
and the living water, all of those needs can be met. You know, 21 years ago today, World Trade Centers and all of that stuff that went down. And I was thinking about this this morning. 21 years ago, it's a long time. And it seems to me that we've just gone from crisis to crisis to crisis since then. We had the economic disaster. Then we had the Middle East. Now we've got Ukraine, COVID, then Ukraine. And, it, and it's like we just moved from one crisis to the next crisis. We live in crisis mode. We need love, we need purpose, and we need hope. And I think in Jesus, we can live above the crisis and live in that's what he was telling this lady at the well. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for these divine appointments. Nicodemus comes to him with a question because Nicodemus has a question in his spirit, in his soul. This lady comes out to the well. She's just coming for water. She's an outcast. And in both situations, Jesus meets them and meets them where they're at. And he speaks truth into their lives. Transformative truth. And each one of us, Father, I, I believe that you intersect in our lives. You bring us to places where, where you're there. Sometimes we're blind to it. Sometimes we're open to it. Sometimes we're defensive to it. But I know you meet us. You meet us where we're at. And if we will accept you, you will take us to where we need to be. You will bring love, you will bring purpose, and you will bring hope and satisfaction into our lives. I've seen it so many times. Thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. So before Randy comes up, just real quick.